So this evening, I want to talk about the Four Noble Truths. And I'll begin by giving you a bit of the setting in which this uh, was the Buddha's first Dharma talk, in which this Dharma talk was delivered. And then just a brief overview of these truths. But the main focus of the talk is going to be on how we actually experience or realize these truths in our life and in our practice. So the Buddha was practicing with his five companions before the part of the story that you heard about how he received the bowl of rice and sat under the tree and faced his demons, Mara, and got enlightened. Before this, he was practicing with his five ascetic companions, and they were really very sincerely practicing the teachings of their day. And those teachings uh, were that freedom would come by fasting, by doing all kinds of really painful austerities and doing without sleep, um, very painful, intense practices uh, that were designed to kind of starve the body into submission and to transcend the needs of the body through subjecting oneself to this asceticism. There's a cave across the river from Bodhgaya, the town that's grown up around the Bodhi tree where the Buddha sat and was enlightened. And you cross the river and you walk across a plain and climb up to this cave. And there's a statue of the Buddha from this time of his life in that cave. And he is completely emaciated. I mean, the texts say that the skin on the front of his body could touch the vertebra of the spinal column. Um, And in this statue, he's sitting up straight with total determination, just like a living skeleton. And you can feel this just, he's burning with the passion to know the truth, even if it kills him. It's very moving to see this statue. So that's what he was into, and that's what he was doing, and that's what they were all doing together, very sincerely. And then uh, you heard the story of how he basically peeled off. He had the sense that, I mean, it wasn't even a thought. This isn't the right way. He collapsed, and after he revived, he sat, and, um, and he did finally understand the meaning of suffering and the truth of suffering. And he was very clear that that was what he wanted to know. And that his whole teaching, he said, it's about one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And that night he finally understood. After he understood, he spent some time, he hung out, I think for around seven weeks, just kind of digesting and absorbing what he had seen. And then walked to what is now Sarnath, near Varanasi, where he knew his five, five of his former companions were staying. And he went to a place called the Deer Park and delivered his very first Dharma talk. He called this first talk 
setting in motion the wheel of Dharma. And he delivers the essence of his whole teaching, the Four Noble Truths, in this talk. He said, avoiding the two extremes of self-mortification, that which they had all been practicing, and self-indulgence, which was really encouraged during his growing up, according to the legend he had, he lived a life of way more than he needed, which was probably an advantage in terms of letting it go. Uh, Avoiding the two extremes of self-mortification and self-indulgence, I have realized the middle path. And he then taught these four noble truths. In Sanskrit, they are dukkha, which has many different translations. Um, Suffering, affliction, contingency. Let's just use the word dukkha here. Um, The second is samudaya, which means arising. Then niroda, cessation. And marga, path. One of the ascetics named Kundanya knew the second he heard it. He knew immediately that the Buddha had just put an end to his entire, all the years of struggle. And he felt he finally understood what he'd been longing to understand, the meaning of suffering. And he got enlightened right on the spot. Now, this happened wherever the Buddha went. And we kind of chuckle when we hear this. There's, a, if not an outer, at least an inner chuckle. Like, oh yeah, you know, all you have to do is hear this teaching and boom, enlightened. But I think it points to something that we might consider, which is that maybe it doesn't take years and years and years and years and lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes to understand Maybe this is an understanding that is available to all of us and not, uh, and maybe right now, and not some story about the future. The Buddha taught enlightenment. He didn't teach that we would never be sad or depressed or have grief or sorrow. He didn't teach that we should duck and cover and hide from our suffering at all costs. He taught us how not to be discouraged, how not to lose heart, and how not to make it worse. He taught us how to meet our trouble and pain with dignity and nobility. And I think that's why these are called noble truths. And Kundanya really heard him, and so did the others really listen. They were so... I mean, at first, they actually um, turned away from from him, the story says. They were disgusted that he had caved in and eaten food, and they felt that he had abandoned the teachings and them. But they were so deeply affected by his changed countenance and demeanor. They saw that his gaunt and hollow face was now open and clear and radiant and calm. And the Buddha helped too because he never put himself above his friends. There was no conceit. He was just saying, look, 
listen, this is what I discovered. And he doesn't and never has put himself above us either. He showed his friends and he showed all of us a way to live with life as it is, really raw and real, with all its changes, inner and outer ups and downs, as our path. He shows us that whether we suffer or not, doesn't depend on outer circumstances as much as on how we deal with them. He taught us that the way we meet the experiences of our inner life can build skills that affect our outer lives in countless beneficial ways. And the whole whole foundation of this path is insight into these four noble truths and how they actually function in our experience. So just very brief overview, very simply, they are the truth of dukkha, that there is suffering in this life, it's simply so. The cause of it, there's a reason for this, we can know the reason. The end of it, it can end. We just let go of what causes it, and it will end. And then how to end our suffering, spelled out in eight steps, this eightfold way of living, right conduct, speech, livelihood, intention, effort, um, right understanding, which is actually understanding these Four Noble Truths, mindfulness, concentration. And this way of life, when taken to heart, shows us unmistakably What lies on the other side of suffering? We've all had moments of this when your mind is calm and clear. You can catch a glimpse. You can see this beautiful world is exquisite and boundless. And when the heart is open, both the beauty and the immense suffering of life can be held in the same heart at the same time in perfect peace with no conflict. So these truths, if we look at them um, from a sort of psychological or medical framework, which was very common in the way things were laid out in India of that time, there's a, the first truth is the diagnosis that there is suffering inherent in life. And I'm going to talk some more about that. The second one is the etiology, the cause, which is said to be craving and aversion and how we get caught there. The third is the prognosis. This suffering can be ended. And the fourth is the treatment, which is the Eightfold Path. So I want to spend some time um, talking about suffering because by now, no one here is a stranger to it, if you were before. But still, this truth isn't exactly self-evident, because it runs counter to the way we want to see the world. We don't want to see the world as full of suffering. Like Achan Sumedho was saying the other night, you know, just seeing it as, how did he put it, like this wet, dismal blanket of suffering. Um, We don't want to see things like that, even when it's raining again. (laughs) Uh, And 
requires some effort to open to the universality of suffering. And the Buddha was very clear. He's not just talking about psychological suffering. He's talking about the suffering of being born, of getting sick, of growing old, of dying. And these things are very hard to face, especially the dying part. There is a whole series of special meditations that are required for us to face the full reality of death. And uh, in the Tibetan tradition, the, the first meditations you receive are meditations on death and impermanence. Uh, that's where you begin. And yeah, that dying side of life, it's not what we want to really see. We don't want to see that this retreat will end. Well, actually, maybe um, <laughs> do want to see it, but let's think of it this way. We won't ever be together again in exactly this constellation of beings. It'll never be exactly like this again, all of us here together. And you're going to die. And I'm going to die. That's easier for you to face, isn't it? <laughs> you know, we're like that. Although, I will say, there was a moment as a young mother, because I was practicing, you know, of realizing, oh my gosh, someday I'm going to have to say goodbye to my own child. That was very, that was inconceivable. It still is. It's inconceivable that our parents should die. Our mommies, our daddies. I mean, it's hard to face this. And this is the dukkha of our great vulnerability to impermanence. <clears throat> My first teacher has taught us that, I think it's pretty standard teaching, that there are four kinds of dukkha. Um, there's wanting what we don't have. Again, you're all familiar with this here, certainly. Wanting what we don't have. There's having what we don't want. Again, I know you know what I mean. <laughs> There's being separated from those we love. And we've all taken that on uh, by being here. And there's having to be close to those we don't love. <laughs> I think you've experienced that, too, at moments here. This is sort of ordinary, obvious <coughs> dukkha. Then there's the dukkha of, uh, yes, that changing nature of things. Um, there's inspiring dukkha, how people meet dukkha in inspiring ways, but it's still dukkha. My first teacher, um, the Korean Zen master, Desan Sanin, he came to this country penniless. You know, he was head of the Chogye order of Buddhism in Korea. He came here and worked in a laundromat. I mean, it was probably fun at first. Nobody knew who he was. He probably escaped all those abbotty responsibilities he had back in Korea. But, you know, he had really no money. He really worked in the laundromat. I'm sure people did not treat him very respectfully a lot of the time. And that was his life here. There's the dukkha. I remember 
um, I had my daughter pretty young, and when I, in my day, we just didn't learn much about birth or labor. I mean, my whole preparation was when I would go to the doctor for checkups, prenatal checkups, there was this plastic cross-section of a trunk. No head, no, just a trunk. And actually, I think it was just the lower trunk. And it showed, you know, I think the intestines were pink, and it had these plastic parts, and it showed a uterus with a baby in it, and then a birth canal. We know what that really is, but it was called a birth canal. And that was it. It was plastic, it didn't move, and that was kind of my education about childbirth. (laughs) And I remember, I was really excited when the day came, and I went to the hospital, and I felt like, I mean, my only analogy was I'm going to take an exam or something, I know, you know, but I knew I was going to get a baby at the end, you know, so I was pretty excited. And then I walked into the, um, this was before home births, I walked into the labor and delivery area and I heard the other women. (laughs) And my excitement turned into terror. I began physically shaking. I was like, what is this? And, um, you know, the contractions were starting to get more intense and I started to realize what this is. And... You know, I was young, and the only analogy I had, but it was so vivid. I felt like once when I was in Canada, I went on this hugest roller coaster, and I wanted to be on it because it was the highest one. And, but I didn't really like roller coasters, and on the way up the hill, there was the gears clicking, click, 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 and I remember feeling, it's too late. I can't get off. Click, click, click toward the summit of the hill. And that's what it was like going into labor. It was like, oh, there's no way out of this. You know, it's an inexorable process. It's going to go on. And it's not going to stop until a baby is born or an alternative that's too horrible to even consider happens. And it was the first encounter, conscious encounter, with that inexorability of life. And, um, and I see my mother encountering it. She's going to be, <clears throat> she's going to be 86 next month. And she has been very clear. She's made two vows for her elderly time, for growing old. One is that she won't complain about her symptoms. She says she won't do what um, some people her age call the organ recital. Um, She refuses. She's very dignified, she's very gracious, and she won't engage in that. And the other thing she won't do is make us feel guilty if we can't come visit her. Um, So these are really good vows, and she has actually held to them. She really has held to them. The only glimpse she gives us into her reality is this quote she likes to quote. She says, Old age is not for sissies. (laughs) And she means it. And that's the only glimpse I get into what this is really like for her. It's not for sissies. In other words, you have to be really strong 
to meet this and keep your vows. My teacher Maureen Stuart Roshi, um, well, I'll read you this story about her. Maureen Stewart, who struggled with cancer for a number of years, was known for the clarity, presence, and vibrant quality of aliveness with which she faced her illness. I would say with which she faced her life. Her illness was just part of her life. She really wouldn't want to hear that. Um, The day after a final unsuccessful surgery, uh, when she'd been given only a short time to live, One of her students, Trudy Goodman, visited her in the hospital. She reports, I think I could tell you myself. Um, I have to read that. But, you know, we look outside of ourselves. There's something so reassuring about reading it in a book. Maureen, I hope you don't mind us laughing about this. I know she wouldn't mind. Um, She would actually be really glad. Um, But she had that surgery, which we hoped would be able to save her life. And instead, they had to sew her all up, long, long incision, with the knowledge that she wasn't going to have long to live. She said the doctor, who really loved her, had tears in his eyes when he told her. And when I came to visit her that next day in the hospital, she didn't see me at first because of just the way the door was sort of behind her bed. And I saw her um, dabbing her cheeks with Kleenex. But when I walked in and she saw me, she kind of straightened up. And all she said, she just looked me in the eye and said, this is going to be really challenging. And you know, in my work with hundreds and hundreds of people as a psychotherapist and Dharma teacher, and holding my own pain and tragedies of life, I have developed a deep respect for dukkha. Another kind of dukkha is the dukkha of um, just the anxiety of our sort of ignorant, separate existence when we don't know there's any other way and just living at this very concrete level of perception of self and other. And it makes anxiety and insecurity kind of inevitable because it's not aligned with the way things really are. So it makes us nervous, even though we may not know consciously how things are, we know it's not like this. And this is a kind of hidden or universal dukkha that you can see more clearly as you practice. This is a quote um, from Tuku Urjan. I got inspired by Marie quoting him. Um, it's a quote about this kind of ignorance. Um, he's talking about the kingdom of stupidity. Right now, sentient beings have captured the kingdom of stupidity. Once this unaware meandering is cleared up, meandering mind, there's nothing other than the kingdom of original wakefulness. But until that happens, King Ignorance has five ministers, 
the five poisons, we could say three ministers in our tradition, the three poisons, I think they add pride and jealousy in their tradition to make five. Their deputies are the 21 unvirtuous mental events, that's all. (laughs) The 80 innate thought states, the subjects, here they go, the subjects are the 84,000 disturbing emotions. This tyrant rules the kingdom of endless samsara. We all live in his realm and we think it's just great. The Buddha said it's difficult to shoot from a distance arrow after arrow through a narrow keyhole and miss not once. It's more difficult to shoot and penetrate with the tip of a hair split a hundred times, a piece of hair similarly split. It's still more difficult to penetrate to the fact that all this is suffering. And why this is a noble truth, this first truth of suffering, I think, is because it brings us to the Dharma. The most authentic reason you have for practicing is your own dukkha. It's genuine. It's completely authentic. And the stronger and deeper the suffering, the stronger and deeper often the desire to be free. This aspiration was called the one fortunate attachment by the Buddha, the craving to practice dharma and to know the taste of freedom. So this first noble truth shows us that um, we can develop a finer and finer sense of suffering, sliced thinner and thinner. And seen this way, it's an antidote to denial, to the flight into oscillating between hope and fear. It's an antidote to self-clinging, because it threatens the integrity of our self-concept as somebody everlasting and omnipotent. And the more we acknowledge this, the more tenderness and compassion there is. So these first, the first and second truth, the second being the cause of suffering, is just learning to recognize and understand how suffering arises, how we unwittingly cause it out of our misunderstandings and just plain unawareness. One yogi in a retreat I taught, um, he lost his balance during a mindful movement we were doing, and he stepped on the first person's foot behind him and broke her toe, unbeknownst to him, because she never said anything. But she left the retreat, she blamed me, and sank into anger and resentment. And while her toe healed very nicely, she found it much harder to heal the anger and resentment that were triggered by this, and in spite of much kind attention, has not managed to let it go. So the second truth, there's a reason why we suffer, and this reason is this kind of clinging. And different kinds of clinging, wanting to be someone or not be someone, or um, longing, wanting, wanting things to be different than how they are, the things we already talked about. And this wanting and aversion is, surprise, surprise, it is not actually found. The suffering part is not in the conditions of our life, contrary to what our culture teaches us. They arise from reaction to those conditions, from our own emotional turmoil, from our own hearts and minds, in other words. And this is good news, because that's something we can often more easily do something about. 
So how do we realize the second noble truth in our practice? Really seeing how it operates. It means turning toward whatever you've been avoiding all your life, actually. It's counterintuitive. Turning toward what you've been running away from. Not trying to get rid of desire or aversion. The whole sense realm of our world is is a really sticky place. Sometimes um, I feel, I saw a picture of these little frogs with sticky pads um, on their feet that allow them to get around. And I feel like that sometimes. We're like these little frogs. You know, it's a sticky place. It's a desire (laughs) realm. But if we explore it, turn toward exploring what is this? What is desire? What is longing? What do we want? The Zen master Ikkyu on longing. I'd love to give you something, but what would help? Maybe you long to be a great yogi and impress your teacher and your friends. Maybe you just want to get rid of whatever's bothering you. Maybe you want to suppress or annihilate your painful feelings. Can you see this happening? Does it work? It'd be great if it did. It just doesn't. Or does it paradoxically entangle you more and more with whatever you can't stand? in yourself and your world. How do you see, how do we see what desire and attachment really are, moment to moment, in our experience here? When Marie says the yogi is free from all desire, what does that mean? Does it mean if you're a yogi, you don't desire a mate? You don't want someone to love? Does it mean that this is wrong or that you're a bad yogi if you have desires? Or does being free from desire mean being mindful of the feeling of desire in the body, knowing it as a feeling and as a mental state that arises and passes away? in your consciousness. I've known and loved several highly accomplished teachers. I've known them well. One was my husband, one a lover years before getting married. My teacher Maureen became a dear friend. And several are now my beloved friends. Have any of them totally uprooted desire? Purified themselves of desire? Have I? Not one person I know is entirely free of it. Even in his 90s, one elderly Roshi continued his lifelong habit of creatively trying to seduce women in various ways. (laughs) Does this mean they're imposters? We're imposters, failures at spiritual life. You know, the more this goes on, decade after decade after decade, and we see it's not gone, the question arises, is something wrong? 
reminds me of this Christmas card my friend Helen Torkoff sent from Tricycle one year. And it says on the front, I'm not telling my friends that I'm a Buddhist. And you open it, and it says, because they'll think Buddhism doesn't work. (laughs) Achan Sumedho, who's in his 70s and has certainly practiced a bunch, um, he says, I'm going to quote him here. He says, I can suppress desires sometimes and convince myself that I don't have any, but I can't sustain it. (laughs) When you contemplate the way things are, you see that this realm is like this. It's like this. What's attractive and beautiful, one desires to move towards and to grasp. What's ugly and repulsive gives rise to the desire to withdraw. That's just the way it is. It's not some kind of personal flaw. In that movement of attraction and aversion, there's an awareness that embraces both of them. You can be aware of being attracted. You can be aware of being repelled by something. I like that when he says it's not some kind of personal flaw. That's how I felt when I heard the first noble truth. Oh my gosh, it's part of life. It's not because I didn't get it together and my life isn't working. I used to imagine, when I was a single mom and young, and I used to imagine that other families were happy and knew how to live right. And it was such a pervasive fantasy that somewhere out there was the perfect family that had it, you know, they just had it down. I would look into windows at night and think, maybe it's them. <laughs> you know, but of course, the more families I knew, and once I began working with them, um, anyway. Again, from Achan Sumedho, over the years I've developed this awareness of being attracted, being repelled, so that now I experience consciousness as very expanded. There's a huge spaciousness that I can rest in. The conditions that I'm experiencing both physically and emotionally are reflected in that spaciousness. It's not like they're gone. They're held and supported in it. They're allowed to be. If I did not develop this awareness, then it would be difficult because I'm always struggling with my feelings. The third truth is called cessation, stopping. There's an end to it. It's possible and doable. Liberation, moment to moment, anytime there's some letting go, some release of our identification with the craving and aversion that perpetuate our suffering when we're identified with them. The Buddha didn't teach us not to have feelings. He taught his disciples, he teaches us to be in it, but not of it. To be both in and aware of, aside from the feeling, at the same time. 
as Marie taught last night from the Satipatthana Sutta, the basic instructions on mindfulness. We learn to observe the sensations in the body while in the midst of feeling the sensations. We watch our feelings and know them while having the feelings. There's no contradiction between the teachings of once and for all Nibbana and this moment-to-moment process of feeling, sensing the flow of feelings and letting it simply be so in the openness of heart and mind. The third noble truth is this stopping the battle, the struggle, the allowing our longing, our desire to arise and pass away, finding peace of mind and heart. The trouble is, as one person was saying today when they came in, when the mind gets peaceful and quiet, when the dukkha stops, our habits tell us it's not enough. Maybe I should be doing a different practice. Maybe I should try to generate some kind of experience. I don't think I'm doing enough. Wanting to deepen our practice, we miss the actual deepening of our practice. When it's enough, when we stop grasping for more, then this is it. This is a quote from Achan Amro on the deathless. He says, when grasping ceases, the ultimate truth appears. It's that simple. Ananda and another monk had been debating about the nature of the deathless state and they decided to consult the Buddha. They wanted to know, what is the nature of deathlessness? They prepared themselves for a long, expansive explanation. But the Buddha's response was brief and succinct. He said, the cessation of grasping is deathlessness. That's it. On this point, All the teachings, all the three traditions are identical. When grasping stops, there's deathlessness, the ending of suffering, dukkha, niroda. Achan Buddhadasa talks about everyday nibbana. This is the kind of nibbana that I see, for example, in my, he's going to be two years old in two weeks, my grandson Owen. When he, he's still so little that when he gets hungry, it just kind of hits him all of a sudden and he's suddenly really hungry. <laughs> he's really hungry. And if the food is hot and has to be cooled off or if it's not quite ready, <laughs> and it escalates. And then there's the moment when the spoon goes into the mouth. Hmm. Yum, yum. Hmm. Nibbana. (laughs) So we too can note these moments when something is dropped and the relief. I mean, it's a mundane example and maybe not even a very tasteful one, but how about when you really have to go to the bathroom and you get to go? (sighs) Ah. We overlook these moments. 
They're so ordinary. <laughs> they happen several times a day at least. But instead, notice when something ends, the mind goes looking for something else, something new, anything really, except allowing the attention to rest in the space of awareness. The conditioning is such that I know my mind has been known to stoop to creating horror movies, starring sudden catastrophes befalling my loved ones or myself. I mean, horror movies. It's more entertaining than peace and quiet. As Mark Twain says, some of the most horrible things in my life never really happened. But without them, how boring, how empty the afternoon or evening might be. So can can we be with the glimpses of the mind's spaciousness and bring interest and attention to just that natural openness and peace that can be available to us more and more in moments uh, during retreat. And then there's a shift in consciousness, the shift to being able to discern consciousness without attachment, without identification. I sometimes think this whole path could be described as, you know, all of Buddhism, not identifying with experience and knowing when we are identified with experience. When we're not identified with experience, there's a sense of freedom, of release. And our sense of ourselves is no longer that constant point of reference where that you have that sense of you know, everything being channeled through central headquarters and drenched in emotions. We can be free of that and still be aware. The me falls away. It's not a problem. <clears throat> this is... Um, from Mary Oliver. There's two of them. This is the first one. I'm going to read you a piece of a poem called October, the end of it. Look, I want to love this world as though it's the last chance I'm going to get to be alive and know it. She's talking about stillness here. Sometimes in late summer, I won't touch anything, not the flowers, not the blackberries brimming in the thickets. I won't drink from the pond. I won't name the birds or the trees. I won't whisper my own name. One morning the fox came down the hill, glittering and confident, and didn't see me. And I thought, so this is the world. I'm not in it. It is beautiful. just a piece of one more poem about this too. Cessation. The god of dirt came up to me many times and said so many wise and delectable things. I lay on the grass listening to his dog voice, crow voice, frog voice. Now, he said, 
never once mentioned forever. For years and years, I struggled just to love my life. And then the butterfly rose weightless in the wind. Don't love your life too much, it said, and vanished into the world. That me falls away. We vanish into experience. There's just the pure experience. From Zen Master Ikkyu, who woke up on hearing a crow cawing late one night, sitting in his rowboat, just that pure experience. He said, Ten dumb years I wanted things to be different. Furious, proud, I still feel it. One summer midnight in my little boat on Lake Biwa. Father, when I was a boy, you left me. Now I forgive you. He saw something, didn't he? He saw something about his life. So the fourth truth is the way of non-suffering, the way beyond suffering, the Eightfold Path, learning to alleviate suffering through the three foundations of Buddhist practice, including all the formal meditations and practices used in everyday life that we don't need to really go into here in retreat, but there's sila, right action, speech, livelihood, the ethical ground of sanity and clarity. How to simplify our lives so that we can practice effectively and wholeheartedly. And samadhi, right effort, mindfulness, concentration. We can say wise, I like that. Attention, how to meditate and develop the energy and interest and sincerity for insight to arise. And prajna, or panya, wisdom how we can learn not to identify with what we experience and see when we're so identified that we get caught. With wise understanding comes a deepening capacity to tolerate, embrace, and rest in the unknown. That core of basic anxiety or even terror in the face of life and death. The sense of intense vulnerability and powerlessness can just flip into insight, into emptiness. This is wisdom, and it brings immediate compassion in its wake. And this is where we're led by the fourth noble truth, the path. The path is also an expression of this wisdom and compassion at the same time. Step by step, insight and wisdom bring understanding and awareness, and we begin to experience a more um, multi-dimensional, omnidimensional, universal life in the form, life in the form of you and me, self and other, and world. So I want to end um, with a quote 
from Brother David Stendhal Rast. Why should one moment, he asks, why should one moment of true looking or listening, one moment of true looking or listening, yield what no amount of grappling with problems and trying to figure it out, he didn't say trying to figure it out, no amount of grappling with problems can wrestle from life. Our experience itself suggests an answer to this question. When we watch carefully, we notice that the stillness, a sound, a raindrop, a feeling, teases us for a moment into saying yes to reality, a very special yes. We were caught off guard. We get caught off guard. Our heart went out to this tiny fragment of reality and burst into an unconditioned yes. But having said this kind of yes to the humblest fringe of reality, we have implicitly affirmed all there is. By drinking deeply from the stream, we've said yes to the source. So let's just sit for a minute. By drinking deeply from the stream, we've said yes to its source. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.